My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. life expectancy in British Columbia has fallen because of the overdose crisis. It's had such an impact. I see the impact everywhere I go. When I went to grad school thinking I was the only kid there who had a drug problem, and I was wrong because somebody else in this prestigious grad program died of an overdose. I find it is everywhere. I find there's no part of society where I haven't either witnessed it or experienced it personally. That's the voice of Jordan Westfall. He's today's guest on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Today's guest describes the overdose crisis in Canada as, quote, ongoing and unyielding. End quote. Its impact has been catastrophic. According to official statistics, nearly 27,000 people died from apparent opioid toxicity in Canada between 2016 and mid-2021, mostly in British Columbia, Ontario, and Alberta, but increasingly in other parts of the country as well. The rate is increasing, from 7 per day in 2016 to 20 per day in 2021, and it's severe enough that in BC it has shortened overall life expectancy. Toxicity and the available supply of street drugs is recognized as a major factor driving the crisis. Jordan Westfall is a harm reduction activist based in BC. He has a master's degree in public policy and is co-founder and president of the Canadian Association for Safe Supply, or CAS. The phrase harm reduction captures a wide range of practices and programs that seek to reduce the harms caused by drug use without judging or punishing those who use them, or insisting that they abstain in order to receive support. Things like needle exchange programs or safe injection sites. Safe supply is a term that Westfall himself coined in 2018, and it and its variants have spread quickly and widely since then. It's premised on the idea that creating ways for drug users to access legal, regulated substances, uncontaminated and of known potency, would be a major step in reducing the harm, suffering, and death of the overdose crisis. As with other elements of harm reduction, there is considerable evidence for the benefits of safe supply. According to Westfall, this includes clinical trials that took place in Vancouver, more than two decades of experience with related measures in Europe, and a range of other studies that have been subject to rigorous review both by independent experts and by the relevant federal agency in Canada. Westfall and a handful of other activists started CAS in 2019. Inspired in important respects by the HIV-AIDS movement, the group has combined a willingness to engage in raucous militant protest with participation in the official processes that are shaping policy and government action. Combining the two requires a, quote, constant tiptoeing balance, according to Westfall. But the fact that CAS has never received government funding allows them to speak bluntly, whether that's on the streets or in meeting rooms. The group started out with a splash in 2019, with a series of actions targeting ministers and BC's NDP government demanding that they take action to institute a safe supply. 
The group has also been active in mobilizing people sympathetic to harm reduction in the context of elections. During the most recent provincial election in BC, for instance, their actions were part of catalyzing the emergence of an all-party consensus in favor of safe supply, albeit with varying approaches and levels of enthusiasm among the parties. On the policy side, the group has done things like produce guidances for healthcare providers and participate in countless policy-related meetings with governments. They're collaborating at the moment with Health Canada around a knowledge exchange series focused on making senior government officials more familiar with the evidence supporting safe supply. And separate from his role in CAS, Westfall co-chairs the Health Canada Expert Advisory Group on the issue. At the moment, there seems to be at least a modest willingness on the federal level to do the kinds of work just mentioned and to fund safe supply research and pilot projects. But the safe supply projects that are out there are small and scattered. A big barrier to scaling them up is resistance at the provincial level, overt hostility from conservative governments in Alberta and Ontario, and from the NDP in BC, nominal support coupled with constant delay and inaction. Westfall believes we're at a crucial juncture. The need is urgent, the evidence is clear, and a range of existing models could be used to implement safe supply in a broad way. He also sees the promised National Pharmacare program as a potential vehicle to implement safe supply. But none of this will happen without a fight. I speak with Westfall about the overdose crisis and about the Canadian Association for Safe Supply. My name is Jordan Westfall. I am the co-founder and president of the Canadian Association for Safe Supply. The Canadian Association for Safe Supply is the first national organization focused primarily on ensuring access to legal and regulated substances of known potency, which we call, of course, safe supply. I saw myself as wanting to bring the lived experience I had as a drug user into public policy, into the institutions. I actually went to grad school after graduating from the University of Windsor. I went to grad school at Simon Fraser University. I got a master's in public policy. And what I saw and experienced, I would say, led me to believe that the grassroots, the activism, these are the things that we are going to need. I guess you could say it kind of turned me or radicalized me a little bit going into the school of public policy to see, you know, it's the belly of the beast for people at risk of overdose. You know, how do these decisions get made? Who makes these decisions? You know, seeing all this stuff for the first time is eye-opening. It was absolutely eye-opening. Give listeners a sense of how the overdose crisis in Canada is impacting people. It's been ongoing and unyielding in BC, but in Ontario and in most parts of the country for many, many years now. We like to blame overprescribing. That's become a common theme is that we overprescribe pharmaceutical narcotics to people and this led to all this addiction. And then eventually the controversy surrounding Oxycontin meant it got delisted in Ontario, which meant nobody could get it anymore. And when that happens, people went to more dangerous drugs because that's what they had to do, you know, fentanyl or heroin, right? It's almost like the way it's been addressed politically is death by incrementalism, I would say, in BC and elsewhere. Instead of making these systemic changes that we want to see, like decriminalizing everybody, changing the drug laws, ensuring that everybody has access to a safe supply, instead we get pilot projects. So 50 or 100 people might get a chance to get into a good project and get a new lease on life, so to speak. 
But speaking in BC specifically, there's about 83,000 people who meet a criteria for opioid dependence. The government likes to say we're reaching 7,000 of those 83,000 people, but I'd say the number is a little less than that. I'd say it's closer to about 3,500 to 4,000 people. So we're talking about a tiny amount, a few percentages of people. Meanwhile, overdose in BC is the leading cause of unnatural death. And I don't think it's far behind in Ontario and in several other provinces too, Alberta and Saskatchewan. When I started using, it was all about pharmaceuticals, right? Which were more predictable than the contaminated drugs that people get now. I think that the legacy of removing all those pharmaceuticals and deprescribing and cutting all these people off prescribed opioids is exactly what led to the contamination, the unpredictable drug market. The fact that, you know, so many thousands in Ontario were using prescription opioids who now abruptly had them cut off. And what does that do to a community? That opens up a can of worms in the sense that it opens up a new market for illicit drugs, unpredictable illicit drugs, you know, like fentanyl, like heroin laced with fentanyl, which is like the second nightmare. I mean, it's just made things worse. The more we restrict the supply of legal and regulated drugs or pharmaceutical drugs, the worse things have gotten. How else would you convey to listeners the scale and scope of the crisis and its impacts? Oh, I mean, these things ripple through communities. You know, the actual life expectancy in British Columbia has fallen because of the overdose crisis. It's had such an impact. And I see the impact everywhere I go, even all the places I didn't expect to see it, you know. I went to grad school thinking I was the only kid there who had a drug problem, and I was wrong because somebody else in this prestigious grad program died of an overdose. I find it is everywhere. I find there's no part of society where I haven't either witnessed it or experienced it personally. What exactly does the phrase safe supply mean? Safe supply was something that we came up with in the summer of 2018 in the context of British Columbia. The government in British Columbia was making a very, very big push to put people into treatment. And we were the sort of counterbalance to that. So using the influence of the HIV AIDS era and their idea of safe sex, we came up with safe supply. We felt that like, you know, I'm schooled in public policy. I know the way politicians look at you when you say you want to legalize heroin. So the idea behind safe supply was one to get politicians to think about something without getting their backs up against the wall right away. And on the other side, it was something easy for anybody on the street to remember and recognize, right? Like safe supply. And so the term itself spread very, very quickly throughout 2018. Within about, I think, six months, Health Canada had already started a committee dedicated to it because it became very clearly obvious that we needed to replace that contaminated drug supply. And safe supply became like a good term to use that more politicians felt comfortable with than saying, perhaps, you know, we're going to legalize heroin or something like that right away. 
whatever legal channels existed right now where people could get safe and legal drugs. Safe Supply was a way of identifying those channels and trying to empower them and trying to push them to make regulatory changes, political changes, legislative changes to make that more accessible for people at risk of overdose. What evidence is there supporting Safe Supply as an effective harm reduction intervention? Every harm reduction intervention gets a significant amount of scrutiny. And we know that. We knew that coming in. So what we did is we founded the concept of safe supply on the work of the Naomi and Salome studies in British Columbia. These were programs in Vancouver that used prescription heroin and prescription hydromorphone for people who were at risk of overdose. And those were clinical trials I believe it's been in use over 20 years in Europe, and it's had the highest level of research review possible. It's had a Cochrane review, which is, you know, like a very prestigious sort of confirmation of the evidence itself. And even after that, the Canadian Agency for Drugs and Technology and Health, they reconfirmed that. They did an independent review, and they found For people who have not been successful with methadone or suboxone, it was the best thing for them. And it dominated suboxone and methadone for those people. And it was very cost effective. It was cost effective for communities. That's one thing we try to put into our message as well. I mean, people, because of drugs, because of the drug policies, oftentimes have no choice but to resort to prohibited income generation, you know, crime stuff that could easily be helped if they had easy access to their drug of choice in an accessible setting. How did CAS get started? We started in 2019. There's a lot of issues in drug policy that are worth focusing on and really important. I felt like it was time for safe supply to become something concrete and real for people. And I took influence from CTAC, which was the Canadian Treatment Action Council, which was started by HIV patients to help them get meds for HIV. So the context is similar again to, you know, safe sex and safe supply. Our group CAST, we're going to be an activist group, but we wanted to be an activist group that made systemic change that pushed the government towards making change to increase the access that people can get for drugs. So yeah, we kind of were inspired by previous crises that people have been through and, you know, drawing on that wisdom. The people who joined the group were all very controversial in their own right and outspoken, and in some cases had lost work because of it. We brought that into the group intentionally knowing that we're going to be pushing things forward. We weren't about to mess around. We were ready to rock. We had our first big demonstration, which was an Occupy for Safe Supply demonstration at the Minister of Health, Adrian Dix of British Columbia's office, a couple months after starting the group. We, you know, we're not funded by the government. We do everything, mostly DIY, and we're not beholden to the government either. That's the bonus side of that. So we have freedom to do what we want. We have our autonomy, so to speak. Tell me more about that initial Occupy for Safe Supply action. That was in, I believe, June 2019. It went on for about four weeks. We had a list of cabinet ministers who all played a role in the overdose crisis. 
And we were traveling all around the lower mainland once a week, going to these offices, getting locked out oftentimes. This is still a very intimidating thing for the government at that time. It's been avoided for so many years, you know, even before the term safe supply was around. Most of Canada didn't have access to anything like that. They had the illicit supply and that was it. That era of the group also included us crashing some press conferences that we knew that the health minister and the premier was at, John Horgan's the premier. I remember at that time, he wouldn't even say safe supply. Now I can hear John Horgan on the radio say safe supply anytime. There's massive problems and a massive crisis, but he likes to trot out that we're doing safe supply to the small extent that we're doing it. How have the group's activities evolved since that early point? Our website is safesupply.ca, which means for a lot of people who've ever heard of Safe Supply, it's going to be the first place they go to. We get emails all the time from people across Canada. Can I get a prescription? Where can I get a prescription? What program is there in my city? My subject lines in my emails are like, just overdosed again, please help. Stuff like that. So part of us now is trying whenever possible to connect people to the right people that can help them in their circumstances, in their communities. And it's frustrating and very trying. The other side of it is still lobbying the government, being involved in the government activities, pushing them all the time. We also create resources and guidelines for what we'd like to see for safe supply. We created a guideline for ethical fentanyl prescribers. For a doctor who would prescribe a fentanyl patch for someone at risk of overdose, we created a little guidance and that came with also instructions for a person who may have never injected a pharmaceutical fentanyl patch on how to do that properly. So basic harm reduction. So we do that. Part of my role, not directly with CAS, is that I'm the co-chair of Health Canada has an expert advisory group on safe supply or safer supply, as they call it. And part of the work there is getting meetings together between high-ranking officials, the colleges of physicians and pharmacists, and the players and stakeholders who need to be there to work on this and to make it more accessible. We do the activism, but we also do our best to make sure we're well engaged with what the government is doing, because we can't have systemic change without pushing on them to make it happen. We're big on elections, like British Columbia had a provincial election, and we had a big campaign to get your candidate accountable about the overdose crisis. We made a list of general questions that people could ask who's running about safe supply and what their party stance on it. That was, I think, really helpful in actually forming a sort of all-party consensus because we sent lists of questions to each of the major parties, and each of the major parties, ultimately, they had different thoughts on it. They all agreed that it was necessary. You can actually see that continue now in BC, where there's an all-party committee working on the overdose crisis, but partly on safe supply as well. What do you see as the strengths and challenges of being involved in both exerting pressure through political action outside the system and also participating on the inside through committees and consultations and so on? It's a constant tiptoeing balance. It can be frustrating. Each one requires a different skill set, I believe. And the group we put together has a wide range of those skills. Because of my background in policy, I can do the lobbying thing and the engagement with the government pretty good. 
Some of our other members are great about organizing in the community and setting up demos and stuff like that. And it really depends on the political context at the time, I guess. Certain situations call for certain tactics, you would call them, and sometimes it doesn't require necessarily a demonstration. It might require more just face-to-face engagement. What are the specific demands that you're advancing in the context of the overall demand for safe supply? The term safe supply is, I'd say, probably in the midst of sort of an idea war where there's different interpretations and different understandings of it. And then there's safe supply, but Health Canada calls it safer supply. So that gets it a little bit confusing and muddy. We want to see full pharmacare coverage for drugs that people cannot get right now. That includes heroin, pharmaceutical heroin, both inhalation version and injectable versions, injectable hydromorphone. And we want to see the development of a supply, whatever that might mean. So, I mean, that means pharma companies getting involved in some cases, but most pharma companies do not want to get involved. So there are other groups. There are other pharmaceutical companies who have formed instead, small businesses, still for profit, but much smaller than a billion dollar pharma company who want to serve that need as well. This is innovation that we love to see and we want to see more of it because the need right now is so dire and the ability for the government to get drugs out to people has not been adequate. Earlier, you mentioned that there are safe supply trial projects and pilots out there. Would scaling those up be one way to implement safe supply more broadly? Oh, it's going to be a big piece of it, definitely. I have to give Health Canada a lot of credit. They have an entire stream of funding for safe supply programs, and that will help a great deal. And it puts pressure on producers, on pharmaceutical producers, to produce more drugs. But I feel, though, at the same time that our political leadership lacks some of the vision needed to put this all together, I feel like it's almost like this was an afterthought for them. Like in British Columbia, they're spending half a billion dollars on abstinence-based treatment while spending $22 million on safe supply. That's a huge, huge difference. So I think the government needs to take leadership, and I think it might need to be the federal government because so far to the degree that they have, they're the only ones that have. Um, British Columbia is way past the point of pilot projects. British Columbia is known as this harbinger of progressive drug policy, and it's going through the worst years in the history of overdose. They should be so far beyond the point of pilot projects. The rest of Canada, obviously all over the place, we need those pilot projects. But I feel like British Columbia is dragging their feet to say, oh, let's just wait and see what this evidence is. Let's just wait and see. And we're losing record-breaking amounts of people in the meantime. So I'm sure you're far more intimately aware than I am how harm reduction work can often face hostility, even moral panic, from the mainstream media. How has that worked for CAS and for Safe Supply? How has the media treated your work, and how do you respond, subvert, avoid the kinds of responses that sometimes happen? We try and stick, and this is so crucial, just to the facts and to the evidence We would like to put out like media reports just basically to to outline this is what it is. 83,000 people meet this criteria. 3,000 people are getting this drug. This is in the way. This is in the way. These things could help this. Educating the media is incredibly important because I think a lot of times the context was not there. 
like we had four pilot projects in BC and people thought that meant the overdose crisis was over when those you know pilot projects might support 100 people each so it's about 400 so subtract that from 83,000 people and that's where we're at right now you've talked a lot about the situation in BC what can you say about where the struggle for safe supply is at across other Canadian jurisdictions Ontario has done the best as part of my research, I made a list of every community I could find in Ontario whose city council or health authority or public health unit had requested a safe supply program, and I couldn't believe the list. It's basically any small, mid, large city. So I think Ontario is very much on the cusp of something. Despite that, many service providers in Ontario are also dependent on getting funding from Health Canada which is important in those jurisdictions because the provincial governments there can be more hostile to it. Like look at Alberta, for instance. Ontario, there's been many programs that have popped up. One great program in New Brunswick started over a year ago. So we have that one program in the Atlantic. And I believe Quebec is well on their way to establishing programs as well. But the bulk of them are in British Columbia and Ontario. But the need is everywhere. This is going to become, at some point, a standard of care. Or, on the other side, it becomes possibly in the Compassion Club sort of sense a consumable product for drug consumers where they have rights and responsibilities for consuming those drugs. We're at a very, like, fork in the road, and I think we're going to do a bit of both. But I think it, it ends up kind of like hybriding together. So it's medicalization without pharma coverage, basically. Just because a program charges someone for a fentanyl doesn't mean that's less medicalized, especially since that's on a prescription. So obviously, we'd like to see coverage for all these drugs. We'd also like to see the development of compassion clubs as well. There are people who don't want to go to a doctor or won't see a doctor, and there are doctors who won't prescribe. So we need to keep our options open. We need to look at even how we've regulated past drugs. We now have cannabis and alcohol. Provincial agencies focus on those. There are lessons to be learned there, I think, and some of it can be applied to safe supply. We're also in this situation right now in BC and probably across the country. It's actually even in a briefing note from our provincial health officer where they're like, we don't want to pay for the drugs. And the thing is, is that if you don't want to pay for the drugs, that means the drugs are coming out of pocket of people who at times have no choice, who don't have the funding to continue a habit. If we're charging people street prices for drugs, we can't expect them any less to be involved in crime if they have no choice, but to be still paying those same prices. Because a lot of people do need significantly subsidized or just covered substance so they don't have to worry about that piece of their life anymore. And they can start looking at their whole selves. They can confront their own drug use. Now that that chaos is stopped and they don't have to hustle nonstop anymore, they get to look at their lives and they can consider next steps and what they want to do with themselves. And, you know, how can they get there? And that's all really, really important and inspiring. And I think this National Pharmacare program coming up, there's opportunity there. I heard the NDP critic Don Davies saying that safe supply had nothing to do with pharmacare. And I couldn't disagree more. That's a crucial missed opportunity to get people across the country who may never, ever be able to get a safe supply to get that safe supply. 
You have been listening to my interview with Jordan Westfall of the Canadian Association for Safe Supply. To learn more about the organization, go to safesupply.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 